Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. I was having sort of this minor crisis, like existential crisis, because I was like, I guess I jump ship and go into PR because that's what, you know, a lot of newspaper journalists have to do because, you know, you're always struggling financially and and that was a depressing thought. And so while I was doing that, I was, you know, reading Cracked a lot. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. We're going to be talking to somebody on Skype today. Sandra Sorensen is a classically trained journalist with a strong comedy background, and currently she's the editor or an editor at Cracked.com. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. So you reached out to us, and we're going to talk a little bit later about the story you kind of pitched to us and, uh, you know what that involves. But, you know, going over your bio on your website, you, you've had sort of an interesting track to becoming a journalist or being a journalist. Among the things on your, your website is that you you were a stand-up comedian, you appeared on a tarot card, you cameoed in a popular comic strip, and you've uh, done voiceover work. So let's let's start in many of those different places. <laughs> so how did you become a journalist? I guess you could say it was sort of accidental. Um, I came into it through the sort of exciting world of the alt-weekly. What had happened was when I was in college, I was studying literature and I was in this great program where it was half, you know, kind of traditional literature study. And then the other half was just go out and take as many different writing classes as you can. And so I did a lot of playwriting and I ended up taking a course called Writing for Magazine, which somehow inspired me to start interning at the Santa Barbara Independent. And I loved it. I wasn't thinking journalism or becoming a journalist. I just really wanted to write and I really liked writing features. And so I got a lot of clips from that. And, and some of it was news, kind of low stakes, just sort of events coverage. I had a weird kind of awkward interview with Dr. Laura Schlesinger um, <laughs> when she was promoting her jewelry line because Santa Barbara's weird like that. But um, anyway, so after that, I, I was teaching English as a second language and I was going to join the Peace Corps. And so I was just very quickly looking for, you know, what's a nice full-time office job or something I can do to save up money before I kind of ship out to Eastern Europe for two years. And my local Alt Weekly, which I had read since high school, was always in our house. I loved it. Um, it's called the Ventura County Reporter. On Craigslist, they just had a listing for a staff writer. And I thought, oh, my God, if I got this, I would, I would absolutely stay. And I did. I was incredibly fortunate. It. And I worked there for a couple of years and it was so wonderful because I came out at first doing a lot of sort of arts coverage, theater coverage. And then because it was a small staff, there were only four of us sort of in the newsroom. We were responsible for doing one news story a week, but what really appealed to me was feature writing. And that's kind of how I really got my news training. I did really very little of it in college. I ended up at this wonderful Alt Weekly and that sort of informed my career ever since. So yeah, a bit accidentally, but I'm happy with it. So what is it you like about writing or journalism? What is it you think it appeals to you, your personality? I really enjoy that it gives you, well, it gives me this chance to 
delve into these areas of life and these industries that I never would have normally. My career has been a bit eclectic. I've done a, a bunch of different kinds of journalism. So I, like I said, the alt news weekly format, which definitely is my preferred version. But I did work for about three years at weekly newspapers, more just kind of straightforward community news. And even doing that, I found, you know, even for sleepier communities, I would end up with these, I mean, we talked a little bit about this before, but I ended up doing some really weird and interesting court coverage. So I found myself learning a lot about bank regulations, the criminal justice system, a little bit of everything. And that's, that's what I love being kind of thrown into that. And I think I'm really just drawn to a good narrative, which is why I keep going back to feature writing, because I just really love the idea of delving into a subject, giving it some, I mean, you know, communicating that information with some humanity and hopefully making it interesting and compelling. That's kind of what appeals to me about journalism, I guess. So now part of your coverage, and maybe this was at one of the community papers that you were covering the Oregon judicial system. Could you sort of talk about that experience and, you know, what you learned from that? Yeah. So I was always kind of a city reporter. And the first time I was ever in a courtroom, it was really quite an intense experience. It was a civil wrongful death suit against Washington County in Oregon, and specifically against two sheriff's deputies who basically they had arrived on the scene after this teenager, Lucas Glenn, his parents had called because they were very concerned their son had a knife and he was suicidal. But that's all he had. He had a knife. Everyone was inside the house. The deputies arrive. And within four minutes, Lucas Glenn was dead. And I mean, it was just a heartbreaking story. But I covered basically the parents getting any kind of day in court because before it had just been up for administrative review. The officers were found like there was no wrongdoing found. And so I covered the civil suit, which they won. The the parents won a $2.5 million judgment. Again, that was my first experience in a courtroom. And then I was covering kind of a Tony sort of suburb of Portland called Lake Oswego. And like I say, there's kind of a lot of money there. And so there was this ongoing dispute over development in the downtown area, one mixed use condo in particular. And now that doesn't sound like a very sexy story. And I'll admit it wasn't, you know, from someone who's just like casually reading the newspaper and doesn't have a stake in it. But because that was a community where concerned citizens let's say, had the resources to kind of appeal the decisions and really fight this development. That story alone took me all the way to the state Supreme Court, which I'd never been inside. So I thought that was really interesting. I sat in on a very upsetting parole hearing for a teen from Lake Oswego who had sexually assaulted and murdered a classmate. And so, you know, when I left the paper that I was at, when I left about just over a year ago, my editor at the time said, um, you know, you talk so fondly and, and you really reflect so much about your experiences in the court system or like covering court proceedings. He's like, why don't you, that can be like your outgoing column. So I sat down and I reflected on that. It was really funny. One of the kind of federal, I'm sorry, it was a U.S. district court judge whose courtroom I kept ending up in was Michael Simon, who is actually the nephew of the playwright Neil Simon. And so one thing that I really reflected on when I was thinking about doing this court coverage, you know, what have I learned and what have I found the most compelling? I really appreciated sitting in his courtroom because he had this sort of folksy sort of wit about him. But also, I feel like he was very open about his own personal, you know, conflicts and, and deliberations. And that taught me a lot about the legal system, that there is this sort of 
humanity. It's not immutable. It's not a foregone conclusion when you set foot in a courtroom. It was interesting seeing and hearing this very well-respected judge say, you know, like at one point he was uh, reviewing, I think the case, it's kind of complicated, but basically it was a CEO of a bank who was going to trial for um, fraud charges. But there had been something in the in the bank's charter that said they would cover their employees if they ever you know, had to go to court. And so the CEO was like, yeah, you should pay for my legal fees. And the bank was saying no. And just after, you know, an afternoon of, of, you know, reviewing all the information, the judge said, you know, I honestly don't know how I'm going to rule. I'm going to go home. I'm going to write a decision and I'm going to see what sticks. And I thought, oh, thank you for being so accessible. <laughs> like it was just this kind of fascinating moment. Yeah. And sort of what I'm hearing from you saying is one of the things I actually like myself, what I like about being a journalist is, you know, sometimes we go out and we're giving these assignments and some of them are very dry and, you know, not very interesting, but that doesn't mean they're not important. And that doesn't mean they're not necessarily something in there that is intriguing. And, and I find that a lot of people, and in my own experience as a reporter and as an editor is, you know, when you recognize a story, when you see different angles, something that interests you then suddenly then that becomes something you want to to write about and sort of pursue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you said that you like the, the alt press a lot. What was it you like about being a journalist? Uh, you mean in an all weekly sort of or setting? Or just in any setting. I mean, you, you're at Cracked.com now. Well, yep. Let's talk about that. What, what do you like about doing uh, working at Cracked? Oh, maybe, it maybe it turns out to be really bad. Situation. No, it's not. It's the best job. I actually can't believe how fortunate I am because just to give you some background, when I got the position at Cracked, I was at that, you know, kind of that moment or I'd long been in that moment that I think a lot of journalists get to live in or anyone in any career where you realize, I think I'm kind of done here in, in terms of this particular position. I think I've learned probably as much as I can what's next. And I was having sort of this minor crisis, like existential crisis, because I was like, I guess I jump ship and go into PR because that's what, you know, a lot of newspaper journalists have to do because, you know, you're always struggling financially. And, and that was a depressing thought. And so while I was doing that, I was, you know, reading Cracked a lot, but I was also freelancing for them, which is why I was approached about this position. And so that's so amazing to me. And also comedy was sort of my go-to. It was my outlet, like a creative outlet, entertainment outlet. And I cannot believe that I was approached with this job that was like, hey, you know, this career that you've had in journalism that you love, do you want to keep doing that? But do you want to do that in a very unconventional way? And do you want to do that with a lot more humor? And also it's kind of, you know, if you want to go into video with some of your work. And so that was what the position was presented as. And that's what it's been. And it's been just such a blast. I'm sorry, I totally forgot the question you asked No, that's me. okay. You, you <laughs> answered a much better question uh, that I didn't ask. But let's, let's sort of back up a second and talk about uh, the comedy. This is part of your life and part of your career as well. How did you get into that? I've always been just a really big comedy fan. When I was a kid, I remember when, I don't know when Comedy Central became a thing, but I remember it was kind of always on in our house. My parents have great taste in comedy, so I've always you know grown up seeing kind of great movies and seeing I actually saw stand-up like the first concert I ever went to when I was seven like I remember Bobcat Goldthwait opened and so it's just been a big part of my life that I've, I've loved stand-up and then I would occasionally write for there's a, a site called Split Cider I wrote for them and and it was just sort of an interest I've always had and I think it really if you're into any kind of creative writing 
Um, stand-up comedy is kind of a great way to go. I think if you have, if you've never done it, you don't realize how much thought actually goes into it because good stand-up comedians seem like they're always saying it on the fly and very few of them actually are. Um, so comedy, you know, I, I would go to so many shows when I was living in Portland because you just, they have a great comedy scene. And it's really interesting the way that uh, for me, comedy and journalism have intersected for a really long time. Uh, a great example of this was I'd always been wanting to go try and open mic and do some stand-up. And the reason I did it was because one of my closest friends works at the Associated Press in Portland, and he kind of held me to it. And he said, you know, we're going to go do three open mics. Like, we gave ourselves a deadline. So we're like, okay, this August, in a month-long period, we're going to do three open mic nights. And so we both wrote up our routines, and we ran them by each other, and we did it. We just kind of jumped into it, and that was kind of an amazing, very creatively satisfying experience for me. And it really drove home how important comedy has always been. So I'm, I'm not by any means a professional comedian or even a pro-am comedian. I'm still very new to stand-up, but I'm so excited by just kind of that challenge. It's not always fun to do, but if anyone's feeling stuck in their careers or stuck in a relationship or just needs to kind of shake themselves up, I highly recommend putting yourself up at an open mic night. What was that first experience like being at an open mic? So we went to this place called Helium, which I don't know if you'd call it a comedy club franchise, but when I look back, we probably started with the hardest, the most difficult room, but it actually went really, really well. The way that I prepared myself to do stand-up was, well, for one thing, I read an article on Cracked that was like, you know, basically very instructive about how to not suck as a stand-up comedian. That might be the exact title. And one of the things it touched on was, you know, don't hold for laughter and don't castigate the audience for not laughing. And I realized that was something that a lot of professional comedians would do. I've felt lectured in the audience at a stand-up show before. And some of my favorite comedians absolutely don't do that. It's like they're in their own groove and they're telling their story, they're doing jokes, and they're still engaged with the audience, but they're kind of on a really awesome trajectory. And so I looked at doing my routine as more like I was doing a monologue. And I, I was so in that mindset that I remember when I did get a few laughs, I was like, oh, it was almost unsettling. I was like, oh, that's right. Uh, people might laugh at what I'm saying, but I had rehearsed it so much that if I just went out and didn't get any feedback from the audience, I was still going to get to the end of my routine. And I didn't quite understand the flashing light system. So they cut my mic, but I didn't care. That's not a good thing. That's a very bad thing because you're, you know, held to like three minutes and you're supposed to reflect the, or um, respect the flashing light in the back of the whatever room, I guess. So I misread it. They cut my mic, but I was, I felt so euphoric that I'd gotten any kind of good response that I really didn't care. And then my friend went out right after me and he did a great job. So it was like, we both had a very positive experience and I just, I don't know, it was just kind of an addictive feeling. And this is going to be a lesson in, in bad podcasting. When I did our intro, I forgot to mention that Nicola Grisco is here and she's motioning <laughs> at me that she wanted to make a comment. And I was like, this is going to sound very weird to people listening. Who's this woman? And why is she talking about Nicole? You wanted to say something? Yeah. Well, I mean, are there any similarities between getting up on stage and doing stand up like that and your storytelling role as a journalist? I mean, you kind of mentioned the idea of like going into a story and then thinking it would be one thing, and then you talk to someone and it turns out to be something else. I'd imagine that that's maybe an approach that you have to take when you're on stage and you're yeah. in front of an audience. I don't know if you can talk about that a little bit. 
Absolutely. And I don't think I'm experienced enough in standup that I can really speak to how important that kind of flexibility is. I'm thinking about, I have so many colleagues at Crack who host their own comedy shows. So I have so many colleagues who do that. And I think they could really speak to how flexible you have to be because, you know, I've gone up and it's always been sort of these respectful open mics. Nobody's heckling anyone. I don't know that I would ever be able to do what really great comedians do, which is where you sort of shift gears when you're getting pushback or, you know, I don't know if I could riff with a heckler, for example. But yes, if you're good at that, I would say that absolutely feeds into what makes a journalist a good journalist. You know, like you you go in with an idea that the story is going to be this way and it turns out to be something else, but it's still very much worth telling. And actually, I have run into that quite a bit at Cracked, whether it's, you know, I pitch a story a certain way, and then I have a, a, a personal experience, which is the, the team I'm on at Cracked. We review each other's articles, you know, we pitch the articles, we review it, and we get feedback. And so a lot of times it'll just be editorial feedback, like, okay, let's really just focus on this one aspect and draw it out. So I can, I can give you a fairly recent example. The way it works at personal experience is we have a ways that we get sources, Um, Sometimes it's us approaching people. Sometimes, a lot of times it's people writing into us and saying, I have this really interesting story to tell. And so then we work with them to get that story out. And so this young woman had approached me a couple months ago and she said, Hey, I'm a counselor at a jail, at a county jail. And she, you know, she's going for her master's in social work or I think psychology. But anyway, so she had been at Rikers And now she leads group therapy somewhere in Colorado, at a jail in Colorado. And so I pitched that just talking to her. But there was this one nugget that everyone on the call, on my editorial call, was most interested in, which was, you know, this this is a very interesting system. It's a very interesting thing that she does. But she talked about accidentally getting psychopaths in her group therapy. It's only happened a couple of times because if you are diagnosed as a psychopath, conventional therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is not seen as something that will benefit you. And so they're not generally assigned to group. Uh, So anyway, that went from being a story about, you know, it's kind of interesting to work in a jail and to, to, you know, have realistic expectations as a therapist with the people you work with. It went from that to let's talk about it. How much can you actually work with a psychopath? And are we allowed to say psychopath? And, you know, what, what in our pop culture understanding of psychopathy is correct and what isn't. And so that's turned into, I'm about to file that story. It's turned into quite an exciting assignment because I reached out to Dr. Kent Keel, who's just this brilliant man, gave a great interview. And he's been studying basically the brains of psychopaths through MRI and has published just extensively on how you can actually structurally see in a brain if someone is a psychopath or not. And then I reach out to Dr. James Fallon, who is a neuroscientist who in studying his own brain scan realized he is a psychopath or borderline psychopath. So I talked to a man who has strangely been professionally successful at this, you know, was in this line of work and then discovered this you know, kind of life altering thing about himself. So that's kind of an interesting, I hope that's an interesting example of, you know, thinking a story is going to be one thing and kind of following it to its natural conclusion. Which happens a lot. I think when sometimes you go out to cover something, you have sort of a preconception, but you know, as you're talking, I was sitting here thinking about, you know, the similarities between stand-up comics and journalists. And I wonder if, you know, one of the things that we do as journalists is, 
uh, one of the things that is sort of bravery compared to maybe other people is, is that we actually go up and talk to strangers and ask them questions. And I wonder if that's where a comedian exercises that same muscle. Absolutely. And as a journalist, I mean, it's like I often feel a very immediate, I don't want to say intimacy with people because I know that's got some weird connotations, but but definitely a strong connection with people. That's something that appeals to me about journalism is sitting down for conversation and, you know, while trying to be you know, professional and unbiased and everything, also finding a lot of similarity with the person across from you who maybe you've just walked up to. And in the same way, I think doing stand-up, yeah, it's always incredibly personal and you're always kind of putting it out for this room full of mostly strangers to hopefully connect with or respond to. Absolutely. There's a lot of, I feel like in both journalism and stand-up, there's definitely a lot on the line personally. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, sometimes it's really strange because you'll, you'll get in these interviews and, you know, quite often, as you said, they're very personal and, you know, people are opening up and you, you set up this rapport, but at the end of the day, you leave and you have to take that and you make that whatever that is. And I know that, you know, I always try to make it, you know, as a goal is whenever I, you know, interview somebody is I want to tell their story. I don't want to, you know, take whatever they're telling me and then somehow craft it into something different. I want to, I want to want as much as I can to represent their point of view and their, their idea. But, you know, occasionally you'll, you'll write something in the, and your source isn't particularly happy with it because, you know, maybe it's revelatory or maybe it's right. something that they don't, they don't maybe acknowledge about themselves or, or maybe you got it wrong and hopefully you don't get it wrong. And, uh, but at the end of the day, you, you have that conversation, you, you set that rapport and then you walk away. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, it's strange because then it's like the other thing where you, you're developing a beat with people that you interview mm-hmm. every week and you get sort of this rapport and, and everything seems, everything goes well for a very long time until, you know, the, you know, the city manager that you interview every week suddenly does something wrong and then suddenly you're the enemy. And so then yes. the, the relationship takes a completely different turn. Oh, yeah. And then you're worried about access, maintaining access. Betrayal. <laughs> for, lack, for lack of a better word. So, you know, going through your website and, and looking at your bio, I, I'm really intrigued by a story you worked on. Can you tell me about the time you took a cat to a pet psychic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was working for a company that owned a number of community newspapers and was I mean, obviously working for one newspaper in particular, but we do a number of special issues throughout the year, which in my understanding kind of just drives ad sales, but it's always like human interest stories as well that people like to read. So um, I was in the newsroom and I heard that a freelancer had filed this story about a woman um, in Beaverton, which is a suburb of Portland. I don't know if they'd like me characterizing them as a suburb of Portland. I'll just okay. say a city near Portland. Okay. Um, it says woman in Beaverton, uh, was a pet psychic and this guy had interviewed her, but we didn't have any photos. And so, you know, my editor had said, Oh, I would love if we can just get someone to do, you know, um, a, a reading on their pet. And while that reading is in, in progress, then we'll photograph it. And I said, well, Hey, I, you know, we just adopted this, uh, weird dopey 12 year old cat. We know nothing about him. We, we'd love to really dig into that. So she said, sure. And so at the time I was living with my friend, Tracy, she had technically adopted this cat, but you know, we both felt a lot of ownership of him. And so the cat's name is Milo. And so just one sunny morning, we drive out to Beaverton. We meet with a psychic, a self-proclaimed psychic. And we just were very careful, like not to tell her too much, obviously, which I think is the approach one would take when going to a psychic. And we were like, you know, what can you tell us about him? We just got him and 
it was it was an interesting experience. I don't know that I'm convinced. <laughs> she did say one thing with confidence, which was, you know, telling me that like when he stands on my chest, which he absolutely does, um, you know, that he was trying to make a connection and that he was trying sometimes to halt negative mental chatter that I had. I, I feel like that's a pretty easy read, like who doesn't have negative mental chatter, but it, it was an interesting hour because, you know, whether or not we believed her, we now had this really fun kind of doofy narrative that we always applied to the cat ever after. So it was like he was raised or he was born in a dumpster and then he mm. lived with an unhinged, uh, a mentally unhinged person. It was kind of a sad story she told us about his past and he felt like he couldn't protect the child in that situation. And so that's why when our neighbor's four-year-old came over, he Milo ran from him and it was really funny and a strange experience. But then I thought, you know, this is, Fun. Like, I want to sort of, I don't want to say process it, but this is kind of comedy gold to me. So I just very quickly, you know, wrote up a piece about what that experience was like. And it sort of overlapped with something intense I was going through relationship wise at the time. And I thought, well, you know, what the hell, this is kind of an interesting narrative. And the cat did once jump on my chest when I was having an upsetting text back and forth with this this person I was seeing at the time. And so I thought, you know, this is funny to me, this, you know, intersection of you know, some very personal things with this very kind of absurd experience I just had with a pet psychic. And so I wrote that up and it was run by The Hairpin, which is kind of a women's focused website that I, I really enjoy. They have a lot of interesting and unusual writing. And I just, you know, I wrote it up and I, I didn't even pitch it. I just sent it to them. I'm like, this hasn't been published anywhere. I'd be so honored if you would consider this. And they did and they ran it. And at the time they had this really interesting I don't know, they just had this really interesting way that you could even see who had retweeted, you know, your story and how many times it had been shared. And I saw it was shared like more than 500 times on Facebook, which was so thrilling because at the time I'm working for a newspaper that's got a circulation of like 16,000. I saw some teenager in England tweeted it and said, you know, called this piece of writing, the pet psychic piece of writing, strangely compelling. And I thought, gosh, that's, that's great praise, you know, if, if this appealed to a British teen. So um, that was my strange, you know, cat psychic experience. I, I like that it, it somehow altered your, did it alter your relationship with the, uh, the cat at all, you think? It did. <laughs> I mean, for the better, for the better. I mean, because, you know, sitting down to write it, I really considered, you know, we, we loved this cat. We adored him. One of the reasons he was adopted, he looked a lot like the cat we already had, but like a bigger, goofier version. And I kind of addressed that in, in the piece I wrote for the hairpin. He looked like a Russian animation, which if you don't watch a lot of Russian animation, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense, but just kind of goofy and, and robust. But um, but the way that it did really alter my relationship was I think I was just more conscious. And I found myself, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I, I found myself, you know, when the cat would be laying on my chest, when Milo would be laying on my chest, I would tell him, I'm so glad you're here. Like, thank you for being here. Because, you know, one of the things the pet psychic had said was like, I know she just encouraged communication with the pet. And I'd always talk to him anyway, but I, I just felt more gratitude for him because, you know, whether or not the story that the psychic had told us about his sort of Dickensian early life, whether that was true, I'm sure he had been through something and I'm sure he had a story. So I just kind of kept trying to express that gratitude as, as strange as that might sound. He was an old soul. And, He's an and... old soul. Yeah. I think she said that too. <laughs> He's an old soul. Uh, you know, you saying that reminds me of an experience that I had um, was not with a cat psychic, but uh, when I was an editor at a weekly paper, this woman called us and said that 
the lamp in her bedroom was flashing, was casting the image of Jesus on her ceiling. Wow. And so I had, I had, didn't send a reporter. I actually had an intern. I said, well, yeah, go to her house, talk to her (laughs) and then take a picture of her. You know, he was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm gathering from this woman that she's very sincere and she has a story to tell. Why don't you go and interview her and take a picture of the ceiling? And so he did that and he came back and he said, yeah, you know, she took me to the bedroom and I looked up the ceiling. I took a picture. I didn't see anything. We processed the photo and it was just didn't see anything. But, you know, that wasn't necessarily what the important thing was. The important thing is that this is what this woman's this is her story and she wanted to tell it. And, you know, it was a it was a fun little story. We we didn't do it to make fun of her. We didn't do it to say that Jesus was on this woman's ceiling but this was her experience and we wanted to sort of share that with other people yeah that sounds like kind of a a, a stated mission of a lot of i don't know if this was like community newspaper yeah it was a community <laughs> no it was the new york times no it was obviously the... if you can send an intern for that particular story it's, it's going to be a bit smaller but um no i think that's a really important service uh, of local media is you know to, to give time and attention to the stories that people find important and actually that reminds me of when i was at the paper in like last week we had quite a popular and quite a strange um, police log, police blotter, you know, that we'd run. And I I was only responsible for it on the weeks when the guy who normally did it was on vacation. Um, But that was interesting because, um, like I I mentioned, you know, like Oswego's got some money flowing around. And so they have a really great police force, well, um, whose mission, or I guess their mission statement, their slogan is no call too small which is def, I mean, I live in LA now, that's definitely not true here. Um, <laughs> as I know, cause I just had to report a couple weeks ago that my car got broken into. I feel like if I Welcome reported to that LA. in Lake Oswego, in LA, yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like if I had reported that in Lake Oswego, I would have gotten a much better standard of care, but it's fine, LAPD is fine. Um, I know they're much busier, but Lake Oswego's police blotter was very interesting because there was this mentality of, you know, I'm gonna call about this. And one of my favorite items, and there's so many, was a woman called in because she was concerned that she saw a cougar or a mountain lion or something. But on closer inspection, it was just a cat sitting on top of a jacuzzi. (laughs) Someone called to report a bright light out. It was the moon. You know, it was just, it said a lot about this community that the citizens really felt good calling about just about anything. And and there was actually um, a couple former staffers of that paper ended up compiling kind of a best of um, police calls into a book that I think sold pretty well. So, so I alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation. Um, you reached out to us because you, well, you had a, a story to tell about uh, John Wilcock, who was one of the founders of uh, uh, the Village Voice. Can you sort of talk about that? Yeah. So John Milcock, he is now he's 90 or he's closing in on 90. Um, and he's kind of been called the Yorkshire man who went to the States and created the underground press. Because what happened was in his 20s, he came to New York. Well, first I think he went to Canada and then to New York. And as he says, he was just kind of always in the right place at the right time. He ended up being one of the co-founders of the Village Voice and has some really great kind of uh, sassy anecdotes about Norman Mailer. And he went from there, I mean, because I think he felt about The Village Voice that it was kind of the edgiest publication at the time, but it wasn't quite edgy enough. And so then he would go on and um, he helped found, I think it was the United 
what was it called? Uh, the Underground Press Syndicate, I believe is what it was called. But he was also very active in Andy Warhol's factory. So he was friends with Andy Warhol. He was sort of the de facto reporter there. Um, he ended up helping Andy Warhol launch Interview Magazine. He later wrote this fascinating book that was published called, I think it was The Sex Life. Yeah, The Autobiography and Sex Life of Andy Warhol, which is just this fascinating collection of interviews with people, you know, who hung around the factory, um, Viva, et cetera, and really, really great photos, too. And now that's really hard to find, but it's at this point, I think, a very well-respected publication. And then John came out West and it was sort of like to make money. He ended up writing travel guides, like budget travel guides for this uh, publication called Insight. And so he just had this really fascinating career, but always promoting underground publications, always being a part of them. He was part of a marijuana-focused publication. He's a marijuana enthusiast, I would say, lifelong. And he's just rubbed elbows with so many people, like beyond Warhol. Um, you know, he, he'd hung out a couple times with um, Woody Allen. He was friends with Shel Silverstein. You know, he found out that uh, Leonard Cohen would read his column in Village Voice every week. Just a really fascinating guy. And the way that I met him was when I was working at the Ventura County Reporter. Um, we there's just this guy who was sending his zines in like once a month, and my editor was like, "Um, you should call up this John Wilcock, like see what he's about." I think this was about in 2006, and I found out that he lived in the same small town that I lived in in Ventura County called Ojai. It was very artsy, very kind of spiritual vibe there. And so he lived in a guest house there and he would just monthly put together these zines that were sort of this creative continuation of the columns he'd written. And they were, they were amazing. They were sort of like, he just wanted to get any images he found, you know, compelling. He wanted to get those on the page. He would write his columns and it was a literal cut and paste job. So he put these zines together and he'd make two or 300 copies and he'd send them to people around the world that he knew would be interested in them. And he'd send them to our publication. And I meet him and still like, I just kind of know him as the zine guy. And he's a guy who would kind of would be globe trotting. I mean, even into his eighties and he would always take a video camera with him and he would produce his own travel shows that were very kind of public access. I think they aired on public access. And then I sat down and talked to him and it was just mind blowing like his story. And it was everything checked out. I mean, he name dropped, you know, in a very tasteful way. And then, you know, I would go and I would, you know, verify everything he said. And I'd find, I'd be like, why didn't he mention this? Why didn't he mention Charles Silverstein? Like, it was crazy, the kind of underground cred that he has. And yet, you know, people of that world know his name. and He's very well respected, but he kind of never achieved fame and definitely not fortune, which is very unfortunate. And that's one of the reasons why you reached out to us is that there's actually a GoFundMe to uh, to help John. And could you sort of talk about that? Yeah. So John, uh, I think it was in 2014, he suffered a stroke. Um, and up until that time, he'd been, like I said, traveling and, and he was living very independently um, in his beloved Ojai. Uh, but after that, obviously, after the stroke, um, and then he's had a number of other ailments, he needed to live in more of a, a care facility. So he lives in a really nice facility at the moment, but basically he's at a point now because, you know, he's gone through all of his savings and this place is $6,500 a month, um, just because it is, you know, it does offer room board care, everything in quite a nice facility, but, um, but by no means, you know, posh. 
Um, and so he's coming to the end of his savings. And so I was contacted by some friends of his, one friend of his in particular, and we've kind of formed this email chain where we've been, you know, really first we started a GoFundMe account. And we've really been pushing to try and support him. And the way that we're trying to do that at the moment is we're trying to basically fund the next year of John's life, which is, we figure is about $80,000. Um, and it's, you know, it's really unfortunate because he's in kind of a strange place and his, his friend David, who I, I believe uh, you might've been in touch with, he has really been John's advocate and really helped him figure out finances. And he's really the one who's kind of stuck having to figure out what's the next best step for John at the moment. You know, it's like, if he can't continue to meet the $6,500 a month bill, then he's going to, David is going to try and help John get into, I, I believe it's a, a Medicaid facility, but it's, you know, and I don't want to go too much into the details partly because it's incredibly confusing and I think I'm going to get it wrong, but my understanding is it's, it's kind of extremes. It's like to get into a Medicaid facility, you have to meet various criteria. And one of those is you can't have more than $2,000. Like, so it has to be like, you have to prove that you you're very, very low on funds. And so we're in this place where we're really trying to just get the 80,000 together so we can assure him, you know, of this next year in this care facility. And that'll give us time to really figure out, you know, other ways to fund him going forward. One really nice thing about this care facility is I mentioned before, John has you know, been just a lover of marijuana his entire life or entire adult life, I should say, you know, he finds it very helpful creatively and he's been using medical marijuana. There's actually a dispensary in Ventura that I think just out of respect for him and his history, they just, they give him a free supply. And so the care home has been really accommodating, allowing him to basically, I think he uses a vaporizer, but basically to use it in the facility, which I understand is very rare. I'd be hard pressed to find another assisted living facility that does that. Although I'm, I'm hoping that changes, but so that's his current situation. And, you know, the GoFundMe uh, campaign is doing quite well. I think we funded another month so far, which is great, but we really want to just get the word out because, you know, it'd be lovely to give John a proper retirement and to make sure that he's you know, really comfortable and properly taken care of. Because if he does go into Medicaid facility, I'm pretty sure, you know, it's the end of his days smoking for sure, which would be a significant lifestyle shift. So how can uh, people support the GoFundMe? What what do they need to do to, uh, to help out? Definitely. That would be much appreciated. Yeah. That's basically probably the best thing you can do for him. Okay. Well, like I said, we're going to have the link to that with the podcast. Um, this has been a great conversation, Sandra. Thanks for reaching out to us. You have a really sort of fun, fascinating story. <laughs> like a lot of journalists, it's a windy path to get to where you're at, and uh, you've definitely traveled one. Next time on It's All Journalism. There were nine papers in New York, and they were all, I think, nearly all dailies or weeklies or something, but they were all necessarily fairly big papers. I mean, I'd worked for two papers with million, two million, three million circulation, but basically I'd always been very interested in little papers. And um, although there's plenty little papers in England or, or were then, um, there was hardly any of that type of journalism, hardly, hardly any papers in the States, if any, that uh, were, were for, the, for young people or younger people. In our next podcast, we talk to John Wilcock, a legend in the alternative press world about founding the Village Voice in the 1950s, about hanging out with 
Andy Warhol in the 1960s and the development of the underground press. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, A Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.